2: Welcome to the Double X Gab Fest for Thursday, September 21st, the Hillary's Yoga and Chardonnay edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. We're together again. It's been a while. It has. Yeah. It has. We've had the lovely Christina, so, but now we are all together.
1: It's and Latifa Lyle's also uh, doing Sterling Duty. She was great. Oh, my God, have we not been together since Latifah was on the show? I think that's wow. Right.
2: Yeah. Wow. We have luxurious summers, the I three know. of us. So are <laughs> like, oh, I'm in Cannes for a month. So you guys just go ahead without me. <laughs> to be clear, anyway.
1: none, of, none of us None of us were in Cannes. I was in Blackpool, no, we though. It's very what? similar. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was
1: in Cleveland. Oh, boy.
2: <laughs> Same thing.
0: Same
1: thing.
2: All right. Well, let's get going with the show. Our first topic today, Hillary Clinton's new book, What Happened?, Although it has no question mark, it has so no how do you say that? What happened? What happened? What happened? What happened? WTF happened? I don't know how to say it. Anyway, what happened? Uh, the various reactions to it in the press. And uh, and her appearances. And then what do we think of the book? Second, we're going to talk about this moment in campus sexual assault. This is a moment of reassessment. A lot of people taking stock of what we know, what we don't know, what's going right and wrong. So we'll talk about that. And we'll have Emily Offey on as a guest. She just did a fabulous three part series for The Atlantic. And finally, a new study about the awesome importance of best friends. And then, June, you want to talk about what we're going to have in our Slate Plus segment? Because I am excited about that.
1: Yes. Well, of course, it is Slate Plus pledge uh, period right now. But uh, if you are a member, you get to listen to us talking about whether man caves are sexist. We'll be discussing that in full detail. We'll be going really deep into the cave. Uh, and if you want to hear that segment and other, get the other benefits of Slate Plus membership, go to Slate.com slash XXPlus. Okay. Hillary's book,
2: What Happened. So, the reactions in the press, I would say, have been fairly predictable. You know, there have been some book reviews saying, What a whiner, what a complainer, you know, how could she write this book at this moment? Uh, There's been a lot of support from the feminist press because she does talk a lot about what it's like to be a woman in the campaign and a woman in the workplace in general, Um, the shrillness of women, all of those topics. So, we will discuss today what we think of this new book. And this moment in hillary 's life, so noreen i 'll start with you. How about that let 's start with the reactions in the press sort of how did you How did you think the book was received yeah i'm shocked that you don 't think it's surprising
0: the way it was me too, received me too. i I have to say that i I guess maybe i shouldn't be, but I was completely um, I just was a little bit bowled over by the way people seemed the default reaction seems to be, why is this woman talking about the election? She's she's the person who was, you know, the most intimately involved on the Democratic side. It was a world historical event that happened. Uh, why wouldn't we want to hear from her? Why wouldn't we want all the unvarnished details that she's now able to give because she's not running for something? Just the sort of like collective democratic, um, sort of like shut up yeah, that yeah. seems to be happening is so strange to me. It's like it's like you can't sweep this under the rug, right? Like if even if you have decided that the the Hillary Clinton model is is no longer uh, what the Democratic Party should be doing, like that was the decision, and you know, a year and two and three years ago. And you can't undo that history. And it feels to me like those people are shifting blame or something yeah. in this incredibly strange way.
1: And that seems to be another that like, the other part of the reaction apart from STFU is, why aren't you just taking the blame? And as several people have pointed out, she does take the blame. She takes the blame at least 35 times in the book. And yet, there's this again it's kind of a default a sort of instinctive reaction is to say why you shift why are you shirking the blame why are you trying to blame someone else like she isn't well but but
0: also like she does go through all of the reasons that you know she thinks contributed to her loss right and these all seem pretty reasonable to me i do think like james comey's james comey was a factor the email thing was a factor the press coverage of her was a factor sexism was a factor russian (laughs) intervention was a factor right right. The, the the you know the singular nature of donald trump was a factor if she didn't deal with all of that if she just made it into a strange like i am the worst woman in the history of the world like rending her garments kind of thing that would have been uh first of all irresponsible and second of all strange and wrong yeah okay so um
2: uh so we're in I'm the totally tank, chastised, yes. <laughs> I'm totally chastised. No, I am too. I, I what I meant was, it just seemed to me like F seven people calling it in. It's like any time the lady opens her mouth, there comes the exact same kind of public response, and so it almost just washed over me, and I didn't pay that much attention to it because it seemed like so much of the same. Like what you know, she's just being self pitying. She's just rehearsing the stuff that ha- it's like. It's very hard to sort of accept it as anything new. But I think what you guys are saying, which is a very good point, is that it's the Democratic reaction, which is irritating and surprising. So it's not just like the media or the book reviews or the reaction from the right. It's the reaction from the Democratic Party who just wants her to shut up and go away. That is particular and the thing to pay attention to. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, it's people who, you know, literally worked for her are giving blind quotes to reporters saying like, you know, she should go the hell away. And and that, to me, like, again, is blame shifting in mm-hmm. some way. It's like they're trying to distance themselves from this thing that they participated in. And by now, just heaping it all on Hillary, it's as if they weren't, you know, they hadn't done something wrong. I mean... Uh,
2: you know, here's where or I like- that the only way to get past this is like an exorcism. Like it has to, like <laughs> all the blame has to be on her, and she just has to be kind of burned and go away, and then they can start fresh again. Anything else just doesn't quite work. Like we just don't want to hear from her. You know, it's like when the witch comes back up and sort of starts talking, whatever. You don't want to hear it. Right, and here's why I'll admit that I haven't had time to read the book yet, but.
0: I am I wonder how much she grapples with what the Democratic strategy was, which is this conversation that's happening now in the Democratic Party. You know, should there been, have been more of an, an appeal to white working class voters instead of this sort of triumphalist um, we are moving forward into a brighter, more diverse future? does does she grapple with that presumably um some of the people who are now trashing her in the press had buy in mm-hmm. on what that strategy was going to
2: be um i have read the book Whoa. i <laughs> i i picked up the book and i and i sat on my porch one night and read it and i think it is excellent yeah. she grapples with absolutely everything in such minute detail and with such intelligence and clarity. And I'm not a person who goes in, I'm a kind of indifferent Hillary. I'm like a, I'm one of those feminist people who like, you know, just can't get fully on board and has had that conversation for 20 years. This book is truly excellent. It's, it's one of the best political books I've ever read. It is, I mean, there are, there are sort of blind spots throughout the book about her husband and different things like that. But for the most part, it is so Honest and true and intelligent that that it has given me an entirely new picture of who she is and how she thinks and how she goes through things. That's What's what the I new picture? It. That's so interesting. So the way I thought about it is the book. You know, the book has chapters that are about, that that are, are like grit, resilience. You know, that sort of pull from the kind of TED talky language of <laughs> of strength and courage. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, her other book like drove me crazy. Like just all the kind of bullshit coming off of every you know, you just the language that the people biography. write these political books in and yeah. that Veep is like makes fun of. Like so so this book is different. I have read her other books. Um and and what I thought to myself is like, oh well think about how Obama is weathering this period and how Hillary is weathering this period. So so you know, probably the lessons that she talks about about how you get through a moment like this are universal lessons for everyone. You know, you feel terrible, you can barely wake up in the morning, but you know that you have to wake up in the morning. And so you kind of try and spin a story that's a little more positive and hopeful. And what I thought to myself is like, Obama does that naturally. It's like kind of, that's just who he is. He's a person who is kind of built to to kind of weather things, move beyond them and get over them. She does not do that naturally. Like, everything comes very hard to her, Mm. you know? It's all just incredibly hard One She has to fight for it, but she does. And this book is basically just, like, ugh, clawing through all the strain of how you deal with something that's really, really terrible that's happened to you, which looks entirely like your fault, which is a national tragedy in which there's a lot of things that you did wrong and a lot of things that were done onto you that were wrong and how you move through that that muck with some grace and that's why the book is beautiful it's like a genuinely inspiring book that's inspiring like whether you care about politics or not about just like if you're built like hillary and things are hard for you and you're not like all natural and effortless and you don't go hang gliding like obama (laughs) seems to be able to do at this moment then here's how you do it you know i don't know i think the book is great
0: I'm so interested in the narrative around her anger in yeah, the book. Yeah. Um, I thought Rebecca Tracer had a smart take mm-hmm. on that. She pointed out that, like, uh, you know, Hillary hasn't allowed herself to be angry in public before. Right? right. Because people call her, as you said in the intro, Hannah, bitter and shrill. And, and this is finally her unburdening herself. Was Was that a theme that was just felt strongly in the book? Or do you think it was blown out of proportion in the press, Hannah? Uh,
2: no, in like, it was like in a in a perfectly controlled, like, <laughs> man, I was pissed, like, like, even the way the book opens, which is like, should she go to Donald Trump's inauguration or not? Like, it's all mm-hmm. very real. It's like all from completely inside, like decisions that she had to make. So, you know, and moments that she faced in her life and different things throughout. But this is just it's very real, like, like, you're Hillary Clinton, you're a human, but you also lost in this terrible election. What do you do? You You know, so she just like walks you through like she's feeling super pissed off at various moments. She calls the bushes, by the way does is George w that man is a class act like I know we kind of love him now and we're all looking back nostalgically but he is genuinely appears in this book as like as like a guardian angel at a class act so so he, he she calls him and then you know George and Laura are like yeah yeah we're gonna go you know we really don't want to go because of what he said about Jeb but we're gonna go so they go and and then she's like well if they're going I gotta go and then she talks about how she tells Bill to wear a raincoat and that's like a really cute normal moment. Um, and so they go and then it's just insane. Like <laughs> she's just like angry and the whole thing is insane and he's so dark and rageful up there and kind of a lunatic. And then, and then that scene and she's just kind of boiling inside and then that scene ends with George Bush coming to her and saying something like, well that was fucking weird, wasn't it? You <laughs> no,
0: know? that's and my that- favorite <laughs> quote of the whole thing
2: is that was some weird shit. George? <laughs> that w. was some Bush. weird <laughs> shit. That's what it was. That was yeah. some weird shit. And then it's just kind of the ang- dissipates, right? But isn't that exactly how you would have been at that inauguration or anybody would have been? Like (laughs) listening to him just kind of like like puff and rage up there when you know he doesn't deserve it. And then Bush comes and makes it okay. I don't know. It all just seems so – she's angry in the proportions that a normal human being would be angry about what happened. You know, mm-hmm. and, and she says it, frankly, and she's like, you don't want to stay angry, you know, because that's not a good place to land. That's true. You know, and then she just kind of like tries and tries and tries to get beyond that. I just feel so like real this book to me.
0: And then yet everyone just pulls out the bit where she sort of uh, goes goes against Bernie. Right. Like, that's the thing that I saw most. Maybe that's something about who I follow on Twitter. <laughs> but but that it, it's it the way it's being represented is that she's holding this major grudge against Bernie and like and Joe Biden and and that she has these specific male targets. I
2: think most people didn't read the book. Like I think most people read summaries of the book because yeah. I think if you actually read the book it is very 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 difficult to trot out your old line about Hillary because a very different person has written this book than has appeared in public life. Like a totally flawed person who's pissed at a lot of people, but who is just like really straining to to get to a better place. I mean, that's my view of it. Like listeners, if you've actually read the book and feel differently, but I think it's very easy to read the press about the mm-hmm. book and feel like, oh, it's just same old, same old. But mm-hmm. it really doesn't feel same old, same old to me, except in like little moments, you know, But 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 in general, you know, okay, so she's pissed at Bernie, you know? I right. mean, she's probably still processing a lot of stuff. It's been a minute, you know, yeah. not like it's been a minute. It's literally been a minute, you know, it's been, <laughs> been like a very short time. Well, so, and she, so. Right.
0: And she's someone who famously says, you know, I don't do therapy. I sort of hold it in and drink Chardonnay and watch HGTV is, is what she seems to be like saying about how she's coping.
2: Yeah, I got the feeling that coping is hard on her. Like she is not Obama. It is hard. She wakes up every morning and has to really work it. And I don't know who she works it with or what she does. And you know, there's a little like, yoga she doesn't hold back on the kind of upper class markers either in this book, mm. like the yoga, you know, that kind of stuff. It's like <laughs> the, Screw the it yoga now. Chardonnay moments. Right. Yeah, <laughs> they, appear, they appear in this book. So that's her coping mechanism. That's um, how I cope, too, guys- <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yoga
0: and Chardonnay. I really feel but if you were running for
2: office, you would be all about Cleveland and not all about the yoga and the Chardonnay. So.
0: We have yoga yeah. and Chardonnay in Cleveland, too.
2: We have it in the red states. What <laughs> about the feminist stuff? Have you guys, you know, the kind of workplace, what women suffer in the workplace stuff. Um, did you guys read about that?
1: You know, I, I've, I've been out of the country and I'm uh, terribly remiss in my, uh, my reading of, I haven't looked at the book yet, but... It's been what's been interesting to me is listening to podcasts not even the Hillary podcast, but, you know, all of the podcasts that, you know, are like our podcasts have done this, talked about this book. Mm-hmm. And it has been really interesting to hear the women panelists, especially when the women are a minority on the panel, really like get to channel their feelings of, yes, what she's saying. Really resonates with me because I spend a lot of my time being talked over, or interrupted, or not getting the respect that I think I deserve, or just not getting a fair shake, and just feeling like even when men do say things, they're they're paying lip service uh, to certain ideas that they know that they should do, but they're actually behaving a different way. It's like that's been really revealing and very powerful. So that in a sense, you get the feeling that this book um, is having an impact, and you know, getting things out into the discourse. Uh, whether or not people have actually read it yet themselves. Yeah,
0: I mean, it just seems like she's full-throated in that kind of complaint in a way that she was never able to be before, right? Like, in 08, obviously, she sort of distanced herself from her gender in certain key ways. Um, this time around, it was hugely part of the narrative, but in a kind of a triumphalist kind of way, mm. like the women shall inherit the earth kind of way. And now we're getting to see, you know, she just... The, Hillary Clinton has probably had to deal with sexism in the like, most next-level way of any public figure you could imagine. And on some... In some way, it's it's uh, heartening to understand that even she deals with the same things that you do. And in, in another way, it's sort of like, oh, this shit. It just never ends. <laughs> yeah. You don't get yeah. out of it. But, uh, but I do appreciate that she just is finally allowing herself to, to, like, complain a little bit about it, which she has not been able to do before. Because, again, if the minute you complain
2: about sexism, you become this harridan hmm I mean, I think what you do not see in this book, and I think what works, she is neither full-throated nor restrained, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, in both of her modes, you always feel like she's gaming it, you know? And in this book, like, she just says what it is, you know? She just, like, straightforwardly says what it is that she has experienced, which is such a— Like memorable and good narrative that, you know, like many people who read this book, you're like, why didn't you say it like that all those years, you know? Like she tells the story of how when she was young and getting into politics and there was a bunch of guys and she just needed a, a little bit of information from them and they were just getting drunk and they wouldn't give her this bit of information. She doesn't say what it was that she needed. And she kept asking for it. And then one of them leaned over in her face and said, will you just shut up, you know? In that way that, like, she was just ruining the party vibe that was happening, Um, which is just like a chilling little moment. But I think what's really interesting is she says to herself, like, look, I don't have a Bill Clinton biography to tell America. I don't have a Barack Obama biography. I was like a nice middle class girl. You know, Mm -hmm. I got nothing for you in the bootstrap category. (laughs) But what I do have for you is that my public career happens to have perfectly mimicked the kind of modern... Feminist story. Like, that is the story that I got. You know, I have moments when I was the only person in the room taking the bar exam, and moments when law professors said, We have enough women in this school. Like, that is the barrier that she broke in her public life. Like, that is, happens to be her inspirational story. And she tells it really straightforwardly in this book. And then she kind of moves to the, you know, women in the workplace today in Silicon Valley. And there's nothing much new there. Like, it's all stuff we've discussed on the show 100 times. And, you know, you can guess she quotes Cheryl, my good friend, Cheryl Sandberg, like, it's exactly <laughs> what you expect that chapter to sound like. But it's the part where she tells, like, this is the struggle that I had, just like Barack had a s- struggle and Bill had a struggle. And so it leaves you wondering, like, why doesn't that resonate? You know, Mm -hmm. why is that a story that you can't tell? Like, that happens to be your struggle. It should be a story that resonates with millions and millions of American women who have either walked it with her because they're the same age as she is or who have, like, you know, experienced bits and pieces of it Mm -hmm. or can relate to it or have echoes of it in their workplace now. And so that did make me sad and wonder, like, why is that such a hard story to articulate? Racism is not a hard story to articulate, Right now, kind of class bootstrapism is, is not a hard story to articulate as a candidate, but, but this story falls flat. And I don't, I don't know why. I don't, I don't know why. And she, she says many moments in the book, I don't know why. I don't know why this didn't resonate. I don't know why I couldn't convince people. I don't know why I wasn't authentic enough. Like, she really just throws up her hands a lot of moments in the book, which is interesting. Do you guys have any clue? Like, why is that a hard story to, to sell?
0: I wonder if, and this is kind of a dark thought, it's because she's so confident um, and so sure that she has the ability and that, you know, the the times when she's not being recognized, it's the world's fault and not hers. I think that um, for a lot of women, that's not totally relatable. Right. And and even though she's behaving in the way that we say we want to behave with full confidence and in our abilities, I think. Um maybe that turns some people off i I'm not quite sure, but it's something in that zone in that like in all of her confidence competence and confidence we we admire Hillary, but maybe a lot of women can't quite mm-hmm. like like. She's the woman. You mean she doesn't
2: have enough failure? It's like she walked that path, but she she didn't have enough moments where she gave up or got derailed or something like that.
1: Yeah, Is no, that
0: the or just maybe she did, but she doesn't make them part of her narrative, right? Like it's a it's a sort of like. Steady graph upwards. Um, and Bill, you know, yeah, I mean,
2: the big one she has Bill. is her husband's philandering, and that's the one that she is a total blind spot in the book. Like, you know, she just says like, and there, and and then my opponents brought the women that supposedly my husband sexual assaulted, and what a dirty trick that was. And it's like, uh huh right like didn't you just go out and complain about you know what i mean she just doesn't go there at all and that's like and and i don't like who would want to and it's mm-hmm. so yucky and 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 personal and painful but i'm not saying she should i'm just saying that's the moment of pain that she doesn't go to so maybe that was her only choice and that's not a particularly good one you know right and it's it's not great that we need there to be a moment when she's, you know, knocked off the horse. But that's what Americans want. <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, if you have read the book, I'd be curious. I, I had a friend who said she had to stop in her car and weep and oh, my. You know, rolled my eyes when she said that. I know. But then I read the book and I was like, OK, I get it. So I'm curious. Um, I'm curious for our listeners who've read the book. What did you think of it? Were you would you find it inspiring? Did you find it, you know, uh, not credible? Just 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 tell us your reactions. You can go on our Double X GabFest Facebook page, or you can email us at double xgabfest at slate.com. All right, let's move on to our next topic: this moment in campus sexual assault. More than five years into the national debate on campus sexual assault, we're kind of past the shock and the backlash, and we finally have enough distance to start sifting through what's really going on, the politics, the data, and the culture of campus sex. So to help us do that, we have with us today. Emily O'Fi, formerly Dear Prudence and a Slate writer, now writing for The Atlantic, and she did a fabulous three-part series for The Atlantic. The first part is called The Uncomfortable Truth of Campus Rape Policy, and this is the result of a many-year investigation. Hi Emily, welcome to the show. Nice to be with you. All right, so just to just to get people started, um, just tell us a little bit about how long you've been working on this and sort of what what what, what were you trying to figure out in this journey?
3: Well, I first started writing about this whole subject for Slate in 2013 and published several stories uh, for Slate uh, on this topic writ large. And um, the Atlantic series, uh, I started reporting in uh, November 2015, if you can believe it. And uh, I wanted to look at what I felt were still unexplored areas of this. One part had been explored, and that is the whole due process question and what has happened on campus, how are the policies being implemented, and uh, what is happening in when someone's accused and adjudicated.
2: Before we get to the other two parts, so like you're writing this now in a moment when the Trump administration is signaling that they're going to roll back these protections. Did that change the dynamic of how you wrote about it? Because you did a great job of sort of showing cases where, you know, things did not go down legally the way most of us think that they should have, that the accused didn't, their rights weren't respected. And so, but now you've got a Trump administration which is on board with that position. So did that change how you approached it?
3: Well, project has been going on for so long that I wrote it uh, while the Obama administration was still in in office, and it was really aimed at saying, look, there's going to be a new administration uh, soon, and whoever comes in has to look at this, and there have to be reforms. We didn't know if the Trump administration would even engage on this issue. I frankly was surprised uh, because of the accusations of... Uh, sexual violation against him and, you know, the famous uh, Access Hollywood tape. Uh, but they did. So uh, in the end, yes, uh, I, I was kind of following what the administration might do. No one knew. And then they came out in a really big way saying these procedures, uh, the guidance of the Obama administration is too broad Its implementation has hurt a lot of people. It is unfair to the accused and to um, the women making the accusations. And we are going to revise it top to bottom.
2: And given what you know about campus rape policy, I think you might agree with that statement that you just said. Should we trust them? I mean, I bet a lot of our listeners are thinking like, okay, we've read so much about how the problem with this policy, and so we're there, or, or many of them have. I don't know if all of them, but, that, but, but that's been written about a lot, including in your series. But do we trust the Trump administration to be the ones to kind of reform it?
3: Before I get to that, I do want to say, because I've been so immersed in it, as you said, a lot of us know about the problems. What I found in doing this series is that most people have no idea They hadn't really been paying attention. You know, they've heard the kind of famous one in five young women will be sexually assaulted uh, during her years in college, which is a highly disputed figure. But most people just have no idea what's been going on. It's a very strange thing to um, have the administration of a president Uh, who I find despicable and dangerous, uh, coming out and saying, we are going to make some reforms that I also think are necessary. Now, we don't know exactly what they're going to do. We don't know how they'll carry it out. We don't know if they'll make things better or worse. Um, but I felt all along, no matter who became president, something had to be done because this was not sustainable. Uh, the procedures had become so bad that they are undermining the very fight against sexual assault because of the just gross illegitimacy of, the, of how they are carried out on campus.
0: Sometimes, right? Can you, can you go through what your issues are with, with the Title IX um, rules as they're being applied? Because it seems like, you know, you could you could cherry-pick cases on either side.
3: Uh, of course. You, you know, in the end, I, I don't want to get into a war of anecdotes because, of, of course, that can be done. There are 4,600 institutions of degree-granting institutions of higher education in this country. We know very little about what happens at each school, but there's certainly enough evidence now that there are serious systemic problems. There are, there are a couple of issues. One is the definition of sexual misconduct has expanded so broadly that uh, I quote two Harvard uh, law professors, uh, Jeannie Sook Gerson and her husband, Jacob Gerson, who say in a law review article, essentially any sexual encounter or any encounter that has a sexual contact content, and this could be telling a joke, is a potential violation on campus. The schools have embraced this, so you can get in trouble for almost anything there are serious systemic problems. The Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, a civil liberties group, just did uh, a survey of the top colleges in the country and asked them about their various procedures. In half of those schools, a person accused of a sexual violation is not entitled to a clear written statement of what he's supposedly done. And I've written about many cases in which young men are never told explicitly what they've done wrong, uh, which, when you think about that, is absolutely astounding.
1: Uh, Emily, in your piece, uh, you have a, a nice summation where you say that the, many of the remedies to the very real problems of uh, you know, sexual conduct on, on campuses that the remedies are unjust to men, infantilize women, and ultimately undermine the legitimacy of the fight against sexual violence. Now, you talked about that a little bit, but um, I know it's kind of skipping to <laughs> skipping to the end, but how can what, what are some things that we could do that could be done uh, that would address these issues? Is it about changing the the you know, the qualification of guilt, which at the moment is like fifty point oh one percent, you know, by decree? What what could be done to to fix these problems, but also then to kind of stop this challenging of the legitimacy of accusations of sexual violence?
3: I think it's a bunch of things. Uh, you know, it's kind of like addressing smoking. Uh, there were cultural changes. There were regulatory changes. Um, the, the, the rules of engagement and violation are so broad that anyone can be caught up in them. There is no discretion uh, on the part of administrators. If a complaint comes to them, a full-bore investigation must must be done. Even if the complaint itself, it's clear on its face, uh, there's been no serious sexual violation. So I think we re- really have to pull back what the rules are, what the definitions are, what the training is, and then Uh, we need to be looking at really serious violations. Of course they happen. There are bad people on campus. There are bad acts. And we should be focusing on that. Um, But anyone accused is entitled to uh, basic due process and fairness. Or, you know, as you quote from the story, when the people involved in the system, even if you don't like the outcome, feel it's an illegitimate system. That is extremely undermining. The, the system must have legitimacy.
2: You know, I got the, reading your um, series, Emily, I got the ins- I got the impression that there were, you know, there were these laws passed, there was this infrastructure set up, this infrastructure kind of gathered momentum such that you have people whose only jobs revolves around this. And so, so the infrastructure kind of gelled and hardened, and, and now we need to look at it. And kind of shake it loose. So there's at one layer. There's like the and, and and you and and by the way, everyone should read the series because there's you know there's other things Emily talks about like the the science that 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 holds up this infrastructure, um, and and then how how kind of racially biased a lot of these uh, investigations seem. How much more likely black students are to get called in than 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 white students, the boys. That stuff is incredibly interesting. Um, but so there's that layer. But But then this is what I want to ask you guys about, Emily or June and Noreen. Um, There's also the other layer, which is just consent, sex today. Like, if you fix that first layer, I'm not sure you would touch the culture around sex. Um, I was listening to, uh, I don't know if any of you listen to the podcast, The Heart. Uh, Caitlin Prest is the host. She does very intimate stuff. And she did an amazing series called No, which is a three-part series about consent, the best thing I've heard or read about the subject of consent. And, And it did leave me feeling like Even if you fixed all the rules and you got campus sexual assault rules right, there's just still something wrong with kind of sex and consent and how it's happening and and kind of how how – how, you know, women's pleasure is being viewed. I mean, she has a section where she interview she just concludes that like, well, all men have this kind of entitlement to sex. And so she does a thing which I've never heard anyone do, which she interviews her dad and like her best male friend. And they all have a story where essentially they didn't quite force themselves on someone, but they kind like a story that could turn into a campus mm-hmm. sexual assault situation. You know, like every guy who she loves and talks to has a story like that um and, and I don't know how you're supposed to pull- like I don't know how you overhaul the culture of sex and consent, you know, if we've done it in this kind of overly literal legalistic you know, over the top way and and Emily, you've convinced me that system needs some serious reform. Um then then what then what how do you do it? Um if you I can't recommend highly
0: enough Vanessa Gregoriadis' book um that's just out, Blurred Lines. She sort of takes uh what you were just saying Hannah as her point of entry like obviously something is going on with with the way we talk about consent in this in this country and specifically on college campuses and unpacks like how we got there as a culture she talks to tons and tons of students it's school uh, all different kinds of schools across the country from wesleyan to syracuse and and sort of explores like the the um just these these evolving notions of consent and and then does go into some of the administrative stuff, too, but I think um just the the question of the cultural
2: baggage that everyone brings to this she deals with in such a smart way, so Emily, let's end with where do you think this is going? like where do you think um so so you've written this convincing criticism. I feel like people are starting to recognize what the problem with the system is like, where, how do you see this unfolding? Is it going to have to wait and, until post-Trump? Is it going to happen under Trump, ironically? Like, where do you see this moving?
3: Who knows? <laughs> it certainly now has been engaged uh, as an issue um, with kind of acknowledgement that there are voices that haven't been heard. Uh, that's of the young men who've been caught up in the system. And let me just say, Many of them are caught up because they did something wrong. Um, but I, well, first of all, we have to see what exactly the Trump administration comes out with. Uh, there is a lot of, uh, uh, many college administrators and college presidents have kind of already said, obviously we're going to have to obey whatever is, uh, you know, regulatory. Imposed on us, um, but right now they're saying, We don't want to change anything. We are sticking with uh, Obama era guidance. And, you know, they're kind of saying, We're going to resist the changes that are coming. Uh, so it's this very confusing cultural moment. And, you know, on one hand, there might be a kind of discussion saying, you know what, we do have to, everyone comes to agree, well, we do have to make some changes. It might end up entrenching um, the worst of the excesses in reaction to the Trump administration. It's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out.
0: But it is still true that more people don't feel comfortable reporting rapes and sexual assaults overall in this country, right? Like that they feel like they won't be believed I think you know what's happening on campuses is a sort of can be a sort of hothouse environment um, obviously but the big picture thing is that most women do not feel comfortable reporting
3: what are we talking about a criminal act um, again when you you know you see numbers X number of women who have been raped don't report so you're talking about a crime or potential crime that was not reported so how do we know? These, this, these are arrived at through anonymous surveys. You know, the, yes. Do I think most sexual violations are not reported? Absolutely. Um, but then you see, you know, numbers spun out about it. Most rapists get away with their crime. Well, you know, an unreported crime is an uninvestigated crime. So there's an assumption that a rape has happened And it just hasn't been reported. And that is a very serious crime that before someone is labeled uh, a rapist should go through uh, some kind of investigatory process. So, you know, we've got all sorts of complicated definitions. Uh, I totally agree with you. It's underreported.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's the problem. It's the problem of trying to fix the culture while also upholding the rule of law. And that yes. that's a really thorny one.
2: All right. Well, everyone should read the series. It's called The Uncomfortable Truth of Campus Rape Policy. That's part one. The second part, which we haven't even talked about, which is actually my favorite part, is about the bad science around um, sexual assault investigations. That's very, very interesting about how the victim's memory is handled and the science around that and how solid or not solid it is. And finally, a question of race, which is about how African-American college students are wildly more likely to be hauled into these assault investigations than white students when most of us have in our image the kind of privileged white swimmer that's not actually, or golfer or whatever, that's not actually what happens on the ground. Emily, uh, I'm glad you did this series, and thank you for coming on
3: the show. Anna, thank you so much.
2: All right. Let's do our next topic, Best Friends. This topic is actually exclusively for people with best friends who are human. Oh, see you
3: later. And not see you later.
2: <laughs> anyway, so there is a new study in child development which shows that having a best friend when you're a teenager can have significant health benefits well into adulthood. Now, we all know best friends are important. I think the surprise in this study was how long-lasting the effects of having had an early childhood or teenagehood best friend were. People were more, you know, stable, more healthy. There were a lot of effects that showed up in your twenties. So let me just start with the basic question: When you guys were teenagers, did you have a best friend?
0: I had a couple of close friends who I called my best friends um, in this like high school kind of way. But it wasn't like girls'
2: trip where. You like you had the same best friends. No, and I was thinking
0: about this. Like my best friends, I've always had a group of close friends, but they, I think, have evolved as I've moved into different stages in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I don't have the same best friend that I had when I was six.
2: But the study, interestingly, did not specify. It said some people brought the same best friend. It didn't mean that you kept your best friend. The way they did the study was they interviewed people over time. But like it was just the fact that you had a best friend when you were a teenager. Some people brought... That same best friend mm-hmm. to the interviews as the years went on, and other people didn 't um, so so it wasn 't necessary that it was the same person. It was almost like having had a best friend as a teenager it 's a curious study because it seems like you know some people are wired to have yeah. a best friend i don 't know i'm not i 'm not sure what the long like what, what. They, they, they did a yeah. few guesses on why the effects would be long lasting you know.
0: Well, it, it sort of makes sense to me. It's like the, the kind of attachment that you learn to form by having a best friend is like this intimate relationship that's not a romantic relationship that you learn to sort of ask people about their feelings and be considered, you know, just all of all of the um, sort of best parts of friendship. You learn that pattern early on. That makes sense to me. But the idea of like keeping the same one doesn't necessarily seem like it's that important to me. No.
1: And it didn't seem like it was true in the study. And in fact there were certain parts of the study where they were asked to name their best friends and often people didn't name the same people. Like it wasn't necessarily, you know, symmetrical um, but it seemed like it didn't really matter as, as much as just feeling like you have that kind of connection with someone. Mm-hmm. So my daughter is a teenager, mm. and she,
2: uh, I think, has an unusually long-lasting best friend. Um, they've been friends since they were babies. They're in high school together. They're still best friends. They spend a huge amount of time together. It's more like a cousin than a best friend, mm. but they have mm-hmm. remained best friends. So I, as I read the study, I was trying to think, okay, um, uh, what is the benefits of going through life like that, like with one really close person, then with having to, um, her best friend lives in a family of girls and the other girls have the more typical experience where they're kind of in and out of groups of friends. Um, and so mm-hmm. I was thinking, what's the difference? One is the kind of, they, they talk about this in the study, the popularity versus affinity, like like if it, it, it kind of protects you a little bit from from being kind of tossed around on the waves of popularity yeah. and being worried about that too much. Um, it's almost like you know, being married versus dating. It's like it's like she's been married for a long time through her teenage years, so it's protected her in a certain sense from being extremely mm-hmm. vulnerable to to the to the waves that people go through in their teenage years. Um, I think the second thing it does is that it's like you said, Noreen. It, it's sort of practice for a future relationship because there's indefinitely moments over their many-year friendship and in their, in, in their teenagers where they are really angry, you know, where they get mad at each other or don't want to speak to each other, but they kind of come back around. Um, and I think that's mm-hmm. unusual. Like, to have somebody that stable, that's almost, again, like a marriage. It kind of teaches you right. the very basic lesson that you can be super—you can hate somebody and you can come back <laughs> around,
1: you know? So recently, I don't think caused by this study, but maybe just by something that happened in, you know, just someone's life— there was a question that was going around in the uh, Slate one of the Slate Slack channels about whether your romantic partner, whether it's your spouse or your partner, can be your best friend. Um, and you know, some of the things that we read said that men often call their spouse their best friend, but women rarely do. Uh, and you know, as you get as as you've said, um, uh, Hannah, when describing your daughter's friendship, like it does function like a marriage. That marriage, or or you know, a, a, a very close romantic relationship, um, is is a, it, it has a many of the similar you know many of the qualities of a best friend relationship, and it's not just the sex that makes it different. It's maybe the kind of vulnerability of like if you, it's like putting all your eggs in one basket, maybe because when you're talking about your daughter's really close friendship. It is great.
0: I think, of course, right? No, but I guess it depends what we mean by best friend. It's like the person you want to tell everything to first, maybe, um, who you feel safest with, who you want to spend the most time with. I mean, if that's our definition, then of course, right? But if is there some other?
2: Subtlety that I'm missing. In my head, those are strongly different categories. And I know that it, you know, you often see in weddings and you see this in movies a lot. I was watching a scene in Insecure last night, the second to last scene, where it's like, he's my best friend or she's my best friend. And that's just something that couples, especially early on in their coupledom, say about each other. And and this is no dig on my husband, who is awesome and who I love, but I do not... The category of best friend belongs to other people. <laughs> like, it's just not the same for me. And I'm not really sure why. Like, I just think a, a husband is one thing and a best friend is a different thing. And that is a male-female difference. Because I think often men lose friends over time. You know, they they don't necessarily, you know, they might have like a group of college friends that they see a lot, but they don't necessarily maintain, tend to maintain strongly friendships the way women do and certainly the way I do. And so so it might be that men are more likely to, when they think of the person I would say anything to and I am closest to, there's only one person.
0: Well, and female friendships just The valence tends to be more about emotional bonding and intimacy. And and it's harder for men to have that with a friend. And so if the person that you, you know, the only person you sort of share those feelings with is your wife or your partner, then it sort of makes sense.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to ask you guys about this, do you think that it's just a marker of some kind of central stability, like that you can have a best friend? Like, does it say something about you as a person, you know, because some women like feel alienated by this conversation we're having now like somehow to be female you're supposed to be open to that kind of intimacy and closeness and i wonder if there is that in the culture the sense that like you know there's something wrong with you there's something wrong with your character if you can't sustain a best friend that's the sort of dark side of a of what a study like this is suggesting to people
1: i don't know like i i'm not sure that i've ever i'm not not that i've ev- not ever but i've rarely had a best friend in that way um and i i don't know that it's a failure i just like i i think of it as like well i think it's more that for example when i was young i lived a long way from school so you know i was on the bus for 3 hours a day and so my friends were the people who rode the same bus and you know i was close with them but it was more about our transportation route than about, you know, whatever. <laughs> did you discuss um, the transportation <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> We did not. We just, we you know, so we... And we didn't... Like, it wasn't that everybody who rode that bus were friends. Like, you found the ones that had things in common. In my case, you found the other queer ones, you know. Like, there's always some other factor. But it was, you know, if we hadn't been riding that bus, maybe we'd never have spoken to each other. Um, and I think maybe that you... Like maybe because of that, I'm a little bit more um, like I, I can get on with people. I, I'm not unfriendly. I'm I kind of like to just go home and be with my cat. So when you watch these girl shows
2: where like all the girls are together and they have their best friends and that seems to be the kind of definition of what it is to be female in America. Mm-hmm. Do, does that make you feel bad or do you think like, oh, that's no. just not for
1: me or? It just, it's just it's yet another. I mean, it's, it's one of many, many things that are presented in the you know in the world that seem to be great but it's just not something for me i mean heterosexual marriage seems great it's not for me Mm -hmm.
2: all right three cheers for best friends listeners if you have any great best friend stories if you've had especially if you've had the same best friend since you were a kid i'm very curious about those friendships please write in and let
1: us know about
2: that all right ladies it's time for recommendations
1: June, what do you have for us this week? So before I get to my recommendation, I just want to speak in Spanish just for a moment. Woo! Compañeras, compañeros, tengo unas noticias muy emocionantes. Es que a partir del día 5 de octubre, que es el jueves en dos semanas, vamos a lanzar un podcast nuevo que se llama El Gafes en Español. El presentador es Leon Krause, un periodista mexicano muy respetado con varios emis como los otros Gafes, Será una discusión animada de las noticias de la semana, un panel de periodistas, profesores y personajes hispanohablantes sobre la política, pero a veces de cultura y deportes. Pues, búscalo el día 5 de octubre y cuéntalo a vuestros amigos hispanohablantes, por favor. El GAPFES en español. Gracias.
2: Can I translate? That was awesome. <laughs> that was amazing. That was so amazing, and I love your Spanish accent. I'm going to try and translate. I don't really speak Spanish that w- like hardly, but my kids all go to a bilingual school, so uh-huh. like I pick things up along the way. Uh-huh. Okay, so in two weeks yeah. on October 5th, uh-huh. Slate is going to launch a new podcast. Mm-hmm. It's the Slate podcast in Spanish. It's mm-hmm. just like the other Slate podcast, except in Spanish. It's going to be hosted by Leon Krause, who's a Mexican. Did you say Mexican? I did. Or did I make that up? No, you did Yeah. He's a Mexican journalist, and he's won some Emmys, and he's the badass awesome. You didn't say badass, but whatever. <laughs> he's a great journalist, um, multiply awarded, mm-hmm. and it's going to cover politics and lots of other issues, just like the other Slate Pat podcast except in Spanish. How did I do?
1: You did so well. (laughs) You are Okay,
2: that's what I picked up. uh,
1: I hope everybody enjoyed my my Spanish accent. But I really do have a recommendation, which is, Mm -hmm. I was just in England, so I haven't been seeing American TV or anything. And so I've got a weird recommendation. It's an English women's magazine called Take a Break, which is always the first thing I shop for when I arrive in England. And uh, it is, Take a Break is its name. It's a women's magazine, like it's got puzzles, you can you can win money doing these puzzles. It's got like shopping and cooking and like fashion, high street fashion kind of things. But the thing that's amazing about it are the As Told To stories. I swear it gives a better impression of what Britain is really like, like than any other thing. They're all about love rats and like family division and, uh, you know, scam artists and, and sick kids and... And some of them are sad and a few are heartwarming, but it is so British. Next time you land in Britain, if you ever go to Britain, first stop a news agent, get a take a break, it'll tell you all you need to know about Britain.
2: That sounds like the best magazine ever. It, actually- <laughs> it's actually kind of
1: terrible, but I love it completely. <laughs>
2: it sounds awesome. I have two recommendations this week. One is the thing I mentioned, the podcast I mentioned in our segment about Emily Offey. Uh on my reporting, a recent reporting trip. I listened to the whole series while I was driving. It's Caitlin Prest. It, it's uh, her podcast is called The Heart. And this is a three part series called No, which is the best examination of consent I have ever Um, you can't say read, heard, (laughs) read, uh, digested in any way. It's really, really fantastic for people who are thinking about the subject. I want to recommend something else. Um, I also read one of my favorite novels ever, The Great American War by Omar el Akkad. It's uh, kind of post-apocalyptic. It is post-apocalyptic. It has a a sort of female heroine um, of the book uh, who's a very unusual, very unusual Katniss-type heroine. Um, And it uh, doesn't spend a lot of time in world-building, which I don't have a huge amount of patience for. It's a kind of close novelistic study of this one woman, And her wending her way through this American post war decimated landscape. It's really fantastic.
0: Noreen. Um, I want to recommend a novel which uh, I think is going to be sort of a big book club novel for the fall. It's like Entertainment Weekly recommends it. Brees Witherspoon wants her book club to read it, um, which isn't necessarily always my kind of cup of tea <laughs> of a book. But this book is called Little Fires Everywhere, and it's by a woman named Celeste Ng. And um, it's set in... Uh, a suburb of Cleveland, which happens to be the suburb of Cleveland where I grew up, Shaker Heights, Ohio. And um, wow. it's very explicitly set in Shaker Heights. At um, Celeste was actually in my sister's grade at Shaker Heights High School. And wow. Shaker Heights High School is a major part of the novel. Uh, it's a good book. It's it's like smartly plotted. It's very absorbing. It's about um, a family, a sort of classic Shaker Heights family, which is which means you know like sort of progressive, well off, all these all these sort of self regarding things that people from Shaker Heights believe about themselves. And this family, um, their their life is sort of disrupted by the arrival of um, a single mother and a, a very artistic single mother and her daughter, and they sort of. Um, shake up the dynamics of the town, and there's an adoption plot line, and it's, um, it's, it's a good read. But for me, the, the like the pure pleasure of it was recognizing my hometown and, and like agreeing and disagreeing with various characterizations and figuring out which which high school teacher she was um, making thinly veiled reference to. And uh, so, you know, I think people from New York have this feeling all the time, the places they grew up right. with are in literature and movies all the time. But for me, this
2: was just very exciting. That sounds awesome. Is the family called the Malones? So that's horrified <laughs> no, the most no by that's the single mother. Someday. Someday. <laughs> someday. Um, well, that is our show. Thank you so much to our fabulous producer, Vera Lynn Williams, our intern Daniel Schrader, and uh, and to you, all our listeners. To find out more about this show and what we recommend, you can always go to our show page, slate.com slash XX. And listeners, please leave us comments at Facebook.com slash double X Gabfest. On that page, you can tell us what you thought of Hillary's book if you read it, and also talk to us about your best friends or recommend topics that we can talk about next week. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and we will talk to you again in two weeks.